Father in heaven, we're so grateful that you have given us your mercies again this morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Thank you, Father, for the gift of life and breath and all else. We know that without you, we would be able to do nothing, and we certainly would not be able to understand your word. So we need the Holy Spirit this morning. We're praying for rain, Father, for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We're praying for hearts that are open to be teachable and humble. And so please, Lord, uh, we just ask this morning that you would do a work in us by your word that will help each of us to know that we've been in the presence of Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. All right, this morning, we're, last night we talked about the inspiration of the Bible and the fact that the Bible is fully inspired and therefore the Bible is fully authoritative. And that is essential. It's the foundation to any right interpretation of the Bible. This morning, the topic is Herman who? How to interpret the Bible. And we're going to talk about that eight-cylinder word, hermeneutics, that scholars use to describe the process of studying the Bible to come to a proper conclusion. And I think it's worth us just looking for a moment at why uh, this is significant for us. So take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. I said 1 Timothy, and that's why I did it. It was right there on my slide, Don, but I meant 2 Timothy. <clears throat> Ignore the slide. 2 Timothy chapter 2, and uh, we're going to look at verse 15. You know this verse well. It says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. This tells us that there is a right way and there is a wrong way to interpret the Bible, if it tells us anything. And so we want to be those who are approved of God and who are rightly dividing, rightly interpreting what the Bible says. There's a danger that we would wrongly interpret. 2 Peter chapter 3 is where I briefly referenced last night the Apostle Peter speaks of the Apostle Paul and how in his writings there are some things hard to understand. And specifically, if you look at 2 Peter chapter 3, he says in verse 16, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to what? To their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures. So you twist the Scriptures at your own peril. And that is clearly taught by the Apostle. There's no, uh, there's no way we can say, I I'm safe as long as I'm in the Bible. No, we're only safe if we rightly interpret the Bible. And then, of course, there's... 2 Timothy that we referenced last night that says that the last days, and this is in chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, 
are characterized by those who have itching ears and will not, what? Endure sound doctrine. So, you have this picture given in the Bible that there is a right way and a wrong way to interpret the Bible. The Scriptures can be twisted. And in fact, at the end of time, there are people who will heap up teachers who are twisting the Scripture because they have itching ears and are not able to endure the truth. You see, Jesus said that the world would hate us, that we would be set apart from the world by the truth, and that the Word is truth. So, rightly interpreting the Bible requires integrity. It requires sacrifice. It requires us to be faithful. One of your favorite verses in the Bible, I know, is Revelation 14, 12, at the end of the third angel's message, where the New King James says, Here is the what? Patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Of course, the NASB says, Here is the perseverance of the saints. And the NIV says, This calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God. These are the words used to describe those who must endure the frown of the culture at the end of time. They must, in order to rightly interpret the Bible, have patient endurance. They must be able to endure sound doctrine. It's not something that comes wonderfully to us and makes us popular. It doesn't work that way. That's why there's so much distortion in terms of Scripture is because it requires much endurance to accept what it says. Now, Ellen White endorsed a particular set of principles for interpreting the Bible. And you can find this in Great Controversy, page 320, where she talks about it. But she references William Miller and the way that he came to his conclusions in the Bible, and she gave great approval to his method of interpretation. Here from Review and Herald, November 25, 1884, I'm showing you on the screen Father Miller's rules of interpreting the Bible. He says, number one, every word must have its proper bearing on the subject presented in the Bible. Notice I highlighted a word in there. What's that word? Every. Every. You remember us, if you were here last night, talking about how all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and how we are not to live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So we have this this emphasis. On the road to Emmaus, they were foolish because they didn't believe in all that the prophets had spoken. Every word must have its proper bearing. All Scripture is necessary and may be understood by diligent application and study. Number three, nothing revealed in Scripture can, can or will be hid from those who ask in faith, not wavering. Number four, to understand doctrine, bring all the Scriptures together on the subject you wish to know. Then let Every word have its proper influence. And if you conform your theory without a contradiction, you cannot be in error. Number five, Scripture must be its own expositor, since it is a rule of itself. If I depend on a teacher to expound it to me, and he should guess at its meaning, or desire to have it so on account of his sectarian creed, or to be thought wise, then his guessing, desire, creed, or wisdom is my rule, and not 
the Bible. So he's very clear. We must let every word have its proper bearing. All the scriptures must be brought together. And this is the key to what he is saying. When you bring all of the inspired evidence together, it narrows the possibilities of what the Bible is meaning. You see, there's some people who they read, say, in the book of Revelation, and, you know, they say, that beast, you know, represents such and such. And they, you know, highlight something happening in the world today in modern news and what have you to try and uh, identify the prophetic symbol. But we, as Seventh-day Adventists, who take all Scripture and have that in our heads as a hermeneutical principle, we will look to where it says that a beast represents a kingdom. You know, we will not just... Take that verse by itself, but we will begin to look at other passages that help us to identify what it can or cannot be. And the more text that you have on any point, the more narrow your uh, options of what the text meaning might be. And that's the beauty of comparing Scripture with Scripture, and that's the beauty for the Seventh-day Adventist Church of having identified and proven Ellen White as having prophetic authority is because we can now incorporate that into the inspired evidence and it makes it very helpful for us to come to a meaning. And this is what Father Miller is describing in his Bible study method, is bring everything together. You can't let somebody else's view or opinion or your own ability to judge what's inspired or not inspired Determine the truth, because if you do that, then the authority lies not with the Bible, but with you. That's his point. So, let me just give you a few, five actually, simple steps to interpret the Bible. And all I've done is written down the common sense that is in your head. Let's be clear about that. You know, we have these seminars and whatever, but this is just makes sense. Okay? Number one. Read the Bible for its plain or literal meaning. Okay? Number t- and, uh, oh yeah, I, need to, I have a great controversy quote on this. Page 599. If men would take the Bible as it reads, if there were no false teachers to mislead and confuse their minds, a work would be accomplished that would make angels glad and would bring into the fold of Christ thousands upon thousands who are now wandering in error. You'll remember that from last night. But I did not share this one. The language of the Bible should be explained according to its obvious meaning unless what? A symbol or figure is employed. So, as would make sense to any reasonable person, if it's speaking in obvious symbols, then there's going to be a symbolic meaning to the things in that passage. If it's not symbolically written, then it's going to be taken literally. And here's where the futurists fumble in their understanding of how to interpret the Bible. You understand that Seventh-day Adventists, when we interpret prophecy... Uh, we take this principle that Ellen White just shared of if it's in a prophetic, clearly symbolic passage, then it should be looked at as a symbol. But when it comes to interpreting these same passages, futurists interpret symbols that are in clearly prophetic passages to be literal. And this causes all kinds of problems for them, such as 
uh, has been recently spoken about, taking the 1260 days literally, even though it comes in a clearly symbolic passage. Or the 2300 days, taking that literally. Let me give you a reason why, for instance, you can't take the 2300 day prophecy literally. The question was, how long is the vision in Daniel chapter 8? The vision begins at the time of Medo-Persia. Gabriel tells Daniel that the vision also refers to the time of the end. So if it starts in the time of Persia, but Protestants who hold to a futurist idea are simply inconsistent in this because they use day for a year when they're talking about the 490-year period, the 70-week period. Have you ever heard them talk about the... uh, seven-year tribulation at the end of time, that's based on one week in Daniel chapter 9. So they're using day for a year, clearly in that prophetic passage of Daniel chapter 9, but then they jettison it when we talk about the 2300 days and often the 1260. We have to be consistent, and the consistent principle is if it's in a clearly symbolic passage, then those days are going to be symbolic. And as I stated, the 2300 days shows that it has to be in order for it to start at the time of Medo-Persia and end at the time of the end. Another prime example of this is in the book of Revelation, where there's a lot of talk about Armageddon and Babylon and the river Euphrates. And futurists look toward some armies uh, crossing the literal river Euphrates and the literal river Euphrates being dried up, etc. at the end of time. The problem with that is in the very context in Revelation chapter 17 and verse 15, it talks about the waters on which the harlot sits. Now, who is the harlot in Revelation referring to? I mentioned last night. Okay, but but the, the symbol used is Babylon, right? Now, Babylon was a literal city, but now it's talking about Babylon in Revelation as a woman. So it's clearly a symbol, okay? And in literal Babylon, what was the river that ran right through Babylon? The Euphrates. So what was the waters on which Babylon was to sit? That was the Euphrates River, okay? And in Revelation 17, 15, it says the waters where the harlot sits are peoples, nations, tongues, etc. So right in the text, it tells you that this symbol of the waters of the river Euphrates is a symbol of peoples. And yet, with the clear symbolic language and even the explanation, the description of what that symbol means in the very immediate context, there are many people who look at it as the literal river Euphrates. This is just a couple of many examples you could give about how futurists fumble their understanding because of the method they use of interpreting the Bible. I'll show you again from the great controversy. The language of the Bible should be explained according to its obvious meaning unless a symbol or figure is employed. Number two on how to interpret the Bible, consider the immediate scriptural context. Okay, what do we mean by the immediate context? We mean the verses before, the verses after, the the book of the Bible that it's actually written in. That's the immediate scriptural context. Consider the fuller inspired context. Now you're talking about all of the Bible and anything in the Bible that might 
speak to that topic, and all of the spirit of prophecy and what it might shed in terms of light onto the topic. Number four, consider the historical context, the times in which it was written. Counsels to parents, students, and teachers says this, an understanding of the customs of those who lived in Bible times, of the location and time of events, is practical knowledge. It aids in making clear the figures of the Bible and in bringing out the force of Christ's lessons. So we want to understand the historical context. It's important when interpreting the meaning of the writer. There's been, you know, a couple millennia that have passed, and the world is a very different place from the biblical world, which is primarily landowners and tenant farmers. And the temptation sometimes is for us to take our current culture and surroundings and impose that on the meaning of the text. And we have to be careful that we're understanding the original intent of the writer. That's why you need to understand the historical context. Number five, and the last one, is let the inspired writings interpret themselves. This is what we sometimes refer to as exegesis. Okay? Now, before I talk about what that is, let me just give you an example. The Bible does not say love is God. Right? If the Bible said love is God, we would be justified in taking our own concept of what love is and saying that's what God is like. But instead it says God is love. Which means that we have to take the revelation of God in Scripture and say that is what love is like. So if my love is all mercy and no justice, then it's not really love because that's not what the Scripture says. If my love is all justice and no mercy, then that's not really love because we see in the Bible a perfect blend of justice and mercy in the character of God. The love of God is love. There is no other definition. God is love. Similarly, when we come to the Bible, we let the Bible, this is exegesis, we draw out of the Bible the intent of the writer. What does the Bi- what is the Bible telling me about this? We do not impose onto the text what I think that it could mean. So, summarize this on the screen. Exegesis draws out the intended meaning of the text. This is a passage from Thoughts of the Man of Blessing on page 1. Understanding what the words of Jesus meant to those who heard them, we may discern in them a new vividness and beauty and may also gather for ourselves their deeper lessons. So this is the idea of exegesis. We're understanding what the words of Scripture meant by the writer, what their intended meaning was. Eisegesis imposes our understanding onto the text. So let's put both of them into a quote by Ellen White, Christ's Object Lessons, page 112. If you search the Scriptures to vindicate your own opinions, what's that? Eisegesis. You will never reach the truth. Search in order to learn what the Lord says. That is exegesis. Now, John 7, 17, we quoted last night, says, If anyone wills to do his will... He shall know concerning the doctrine whether it is from God. Okay, this is ultimately also speaking about exegesis where it's actually God's intent. 
or whether I speak on my own authority. This is the fundamental question whenever you're trying to uh, determine a right method of interpretation. On whose authority does the truth rest in that method of interpretation? I want to talk to you a little bit about five different methods of interpretation. The first one is basically what I've been describing to you, but scholars refer to it as the historical grammatical method. I'm not going to take time to walk through it, but it's essentially what we have as Seventh-day Adventists understood from a, you know, uh, a scholar's terminology to be those five points of how we interpret the text, take all that it says, let the Bible interpret itself, etc. The second one I want to talk to you about is the historical critical method of interpretation. And everyone underneath that is some bit of a hybrid of historical critical, okay? Allegorical, literalistic, or proof text method, and uh, the principle-based historical cultural, which will be saved for a later time. So let's start with historical critical. The idea of the historical critical method of Bible interpretation, which many people use, is that the Bible contains the Word of God. Not everything is inspired. Some things are inspired, but not everything. Some scripture is influenced negatively by culture or the writer's human bias. So the idea of historical critical is that some of the writers may have a wrong concept just because of the culture they were grown up in, and that's, they write with that wrong concept in some of what they write. Divine truth is in the Bible, but you kind of have to dig through the weeds to find it. And the final authority, therefore, in terms of who is determining what's truth, lies with the reader, again, because the reader is the one who discerns what's a weed and what is not. So higher criticism is, is it's really a secular approach to the Bible, in a sense. that suggests that the Bible is a human product. Therefore, we can't assume that the history it records in the Bible is factual or reliable. It's a somewhat secular approach. Now, you remember we read from Luke 24, verse 45 last night, and he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. You may not have thought about this last night, but I want to point out that the reader, according to scripture, must always adapt to the Bible. The Bible does not adapt to the reader. Otherwise, the Bible is not our authority. So, when you come to the Bible... <clears throat> and you read something, and you don't agree with it, or you don't understand it, if you take the Bible as authoritative, then you get on your knees, and you say, Lord, what does this mean? How can this be? How can you say, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated? I thought you loved everyone. What does this mean? And then God, through the rest of the scripture, will begin to enlighten your mind until one day, perhaps on earth, perhaps in heaven, you come to the realization, oh, I see it. And you realize that the truth was there all along. And it was your concept that needed to adapt to the Bible. If we don't come to the Bible that way, 
if we come with any sort of hint that maybe the Bible could be, you know, written, there's some biases, some negative biases in there, then we will immediately jump to it. It's the same thing I counsel, uh, you know, pre-marriage counseling, and I say, look, if divorce is an option for you, you're going to take it. Like, you need to know, right from the start, the Bible is authoritative. And I must adapt to the Bible, and the Lord is going to have to show me how this matches the beauty of the truth. The Acts of the Apostles, page 474, says, To many the Bible is a lamp without oil, because they have turned their minds into channels of speculative belief that bring misunderstanding and confusion. The work of higher criticism in dissecting, conjecturing, reconstructing, is destroying faith in the Bible as a divine revelation. It is robbing God's word of power to control, uplift, and inspire human lives. You see that? If you come with, to the Bible with that understanding, it robs the Bible of its ability to change you and to help you understand and see and be set free by the truth. So you see, the faith question is what we need to ask when we come to interpret the Bible. The faith question is, what does it mean? You do not want to ask the doubter's question. This is what the historical critical uh, interpreters do. They ask the doubter's question, is it true? You do not need to ask of the Bible, is it true? Even if you don't understand or see or agree with your concept initially. That's not a question for you to ask. The faith question is, what does it mean, Lord? And this is the difference between higher critical and a, and a true, proper interpretation of the Bible. Now let's talk about a form of higher criticism, allegorical method of biblical interpretation. It's a form of higher criticism because it questions the true accuracy of historical accounts. It basically assumes that most all of Scripture is symbolic. There's a literal meaning, but that's not really the actual meaning. You have to dig in to understand the true, hidden, secret almost meaning. It ignores the obvious literal meaning in most cases because the literal meaning is somewhat superficial. It's sort of like Greek dualism. Remember where in Greek dualism they thought that the body was somewhat evil and the spirit, that was what the real thing was and that was where the real beauty was. In the same way, this allegorical method looks at the literal parts of the text and says, that's not really what it's saying, and it tries to dig in to find the actual meaning. Let me give you an example of this from my pastoral ministry. Um, how many of you have ever heard of Branch Davidians? Well, you might not know this, but they're alive and well. In fact, stronger than they've been in quite some time, and I've lost members to the Branch Davidians. These are not the Davidians, which is shepherd's rod, these are the Branch Davidians, which they believe in the living spirit of prophecy, meaning that after Ellen White died, there had to continue to be prophets. Like, there, there has to always be a prophet. And so they always have one, and they have one right now. I could tell you his name, but I don't want you to look him up. So I talked to him on the phone. So here's the thing with the Branch Davidians. They have an answer for everything. That's why they're so attractive. They, they study real deep. You can watch hour and a half thing on YouTube and you only get like a verse because they're just going on and expounding deeply on all this stuff. And I, have a, I had a member who was really curious about certain things 
And she had a question in her mind, I wonder what the horns on the altar mean. And so she looked it up and found somebody talking about it, and they were quoting the spirit of prophecy and everything else, and she found it was these Branch Davidians. By the way, uh, you know David Koresh was a Branch Davidian, but this group does not believe, they believe David Koresh sidetracked the Branch Davidians, and that he actually, because he kind of took over for Lois Roden, their current, their, their not current prophet, but a former prophet, and he kind of sidetracked him, and that was all a ploy of the devil to destroy the work of the Branch Davidians. So now the Branch Davidians, they, they've got, you know, new life. And their whole idea in this, this thing that they wrote that my member was looking up is that they know what the four horns on the altar represent. They represent the four members of the Godhead. That's right. That's what I said. You've got the Father. You've got the Holy Spirit, who is the mother. They believe the Holy Spirit is female. And then you've got the Son. And then you've got the Holy Ghost, which is the daughter. And those are the four horns on the altar. And they give many scriptures to support their view. You wouldn't believe it, but it's true. Whoever told them that there was some spiritual significance to the horns on the altar? Like, do we have to think that there's spiritual significance to the tabernacle tent stakes? Like, everything has a symbolic meaning? No. If the Bible does not give us a clear understanding, and it's not within a clear prophetic or symbolic uh, passage, then it's not necessary that it will always have a symbolic meaning. And the danger of this is when you take something and just start saying that symbolizes this, and there's no real uh, scriptural evidence to support it, is it, that speculation has no accountability. And people are like, oh, that seems like that could make sense. Could be, maybe, no. And that's what happens. People have no accountability and they just start going nowhere. And that's what happens with allegorizing. Another example is to look at the sanctuary and every part of the sanctuary uh, must represent a part of the body. Now, I'll be the first to tell you that I think there are some interesting facets in which maybe the sanctuary has some things that that look interestingly similar to how you could look at the body. I'm not saying when we even talk about these things that we can't think about them and have ideas. But we should never teach as conclusive or teach in a manner that's authoritative something that we really have no evidence for. And the allegorical method basically would say the most holy place is the brain because the law has to be written on our mind. The altar of incense is, well... Ultimately, since the smoke of the incense represents prayer, this water cleanses the body. The altar of sacrifice is the digestive system because only clean animals are permitted, etc. And here's the thing. You may find somebody who teaches something like this and they will talk about it as... They will be using it to support something that's biblical and good. Such as healthy living. But there's a danger in using wrong methods of interpretation to come to right conclusions. Allegory is a form of eisegesis in that it does not truly draw from the text, but imposes our idea onto the text. Whether that idea is right or wrong is not the point. Now, allegory is not the same as prophetic symbols, which are given in the context of symbolic language. Okay? This is not the same as type and anti-type. We have... 
John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And that Lamb was a type of Christ. Scripture affirms that. The high priest was a type of Christ. Scripture affirms that. Jonah was, in fact, a type of Christ. Scripture confirms. The Day of Atonement was a type of the judgment. Scripture confirms. So we're not saying that there's not symbolic or type anti-type, but when we are taking uh, liberties to come up with speculative ideas of what things symbolize or represent with no inspired support, it gets very dangerous and can lead us down wrong paths. It also, if I could just say, uh, questions the validity of the biblical accounts, which I'll talk about in a moment, is a major problem. All right, let's talk about proof text method, which is another wrong method. This is when you use an isolated text arbitrarily to prove a point that the text doesn't actually make. I have actually seen some Bible study guides which will occasionally do that. It'll have a question and an answer, and the answer is like five words out of the text, and if you went and looked at the text, uh, it's not really talking about that at all. Um, so we have to be a little bit cautious. It fails to consider the historical context. It ignores the surrounding context as well as the weight of inspired evidence. And it approaches the text superficially. As soon as it reads it, it puts its immediate understanding or our current definition onto it and doesn't take time to see if Scripture provides its own definition. It's very superficial. Now let me clarify something here. There are many Adventists I've heard who speak negatively about, for instance, our topical Bible study guides which I will share with you this afternoon, uh, are actually uh, a, a method of sharing the truth given to us directly by God. But I'll talk about that later. But they'll speak negatively about these topical Bible study guides that draw from these texts from all over the Bible to prove a point on a particular topic. But let me be clear. There is nothing wrong with using texts to prove a point. That's not what we are referring to when we say proof texting, though some have tried to say that. That is actually using texts, the weight of evidence of text to prove a point is sound Bible study. Proof texting is when you wrongly interpret a text by taking it out of its context or ignoring the weight of inspired evidence to prove a point that the text does not actually make. Sort of like you've heard the story of the man who wanted to know the will of God for his life, so he, you know, you've heard Doug Batchelor probably share the idea. He closes his eyes and points to the Bible, and it says, Judas went out and hanged himself. So he opened the Bible, and he closed his eyes, and he pointed again, and said, go and do likewise. So he opened the Bible, and he pointed again, and it said, what you do, do quickly. This would be ignoring the context, ignoring the original intent of the writer. You understand? You have to be careful not to proof text and not consider all that the Bible says on the topic. Ellen White says, As for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the children of Judah could not drive them out, but the Jebusites dwell with the children of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. Did you know that? The Jebusites still live with the children of Judah to this day? Well, obviously, if we think that, we're ignoring the literary context, okay? It, some, the Bible is transcendent, but some things are referring to the context of the writer. You can also ignore the historical context. Elamite says in 
patriarchs and prophets. During the sojourn in the wilderness, the kindling of fires upon the seventh day had been strictly prohibited. You've ever read that? Their prohibition was not to extend to the land of Canaan, where the severity of the climate would often render fires a necessity. But in the wilderness, fire was not needed for warmth. So you see here that there was a historical context that you have to understand in order to understand and rightly apply what the Bible is saying. Now, can we just take a little bit to look at a few examples together? Um, I'm going to add one more to this, like I said in the beginning, but let's talk for a minute about these examples. Theistic evolution. The idea that the dead go straight to heaven and the idea of eternal conscious torment. The problem with theistic evolution is that it utilizes higher critical and allegorical methods. It takes Genesis 1 and 2 and says even though it's written in plain language, it actually can't possibly mean literally what it says. Why do they believe it doesn't mean literally what it says? Quite frankly, because science and modern culture tell them that it couldn't possibly be. And so they don't ask the faith question, what does it mean? They ask the doubters question, is it true? And their answer, no, it's not true. So it has to mean something else. It must mean that there are these long periods of time, and that's what's represented by when it says these very clear, plain words. But in Mark chapter 10 and verse 6, I'd like to show you what Jesus says. Take your Bible and look at Mark chapter 10. Mark 10 verse 6 says... But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. Adam and Eve were from the what? The beginning of the creation. They were not billions of years after it began. You understand that the whole idea of theistic evolution would place Adam and Eve way toward the end of that continuum. But the Bible says, from the beginning that God made Adam and Eve. So what happens with theistic evolution is that they violate the obvious meaning of the text and the weight of inspired evidence. Let me remind you that in the New Testament, Jesus consistently referred to the accounts of the Old Testament as historical acts and facts. That's right. Adam and Eve as the first married couple. Abel as the first prophet who was killed, Noah and the flood, Moses and the serpent in the wilderness, Moses and the manna from heaven to feed the Israelites in the wilderness, the experiences of Lot and his wife, the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, the miracles of Elijah and Jonah and the big fish. Did you know that Jesus speaks plainly and and literally of every one of these events as historical facts? How can we take the words of Jesus and entirely ignore them in order to come up with our own symbolic understanding of the literal words of Scripture in the Old Testament. Jesus did not view these accounts as allegories, but as straightforward history. And he used these accounts to teach his disciples that the miraculous events of his death and resurrection, and ultimately the second coming, would just as certainly happen. They were faith-inspiring events. And what many have done is made them doubt-inducing events. Now, what about the idea that the dead go straight to heaven? 
This concept interprets metaphoric language and parables. Okay, metaphoric language such as, you know, what you read about in 2 Corinthians 5 about absent from the body. You can clearly, you know, exegete that passage. You can see what it means if you take these principles. We're not going to do that right now. But what they do is take these metaphoric pieces and they, they like the obscure texts. And then they take the parable of the rich man and Lazarus and they take all of those aspects and make them entirely literal and they contradict the significant greater weight of inspired evidence that's written in plain language. One of the things that we need to do as Bible students is whenever we come to a conclusion, if there is another view and they believe that there's a text that is saying something contradicting what we believe the Bible teaches, we have an obligation to reckon with that text. Like, we need to look at that text and at least come up with some plausible understanding that matches the weight of evidence. But let me be clear. We always should go with the weight of evidence. You know, if you were flying overhead and you saw a farmer's fence and he had all these fence posts lined up here and then there was one that went like that, what would you do to fix it? Would you move all of these up here? No. You need to move the one down here. You always go with the weight of evidence. And that's one of the biggest problems. There will be no doctrine just about that you will study that will not have difficult texts that some will use and obscure and twist and distort to try to contradict the great body of the greater weight of evidence. So we must always go with that greater weight, which, remember, we know from Scripture... Peter said plainly that David has not ascended to heaven. And we know that he's a righteous, he was, you know, forgiven and, and heaven bound. Psalm 115, 17 says that the dead don't praise the Lord, which is exactly what they believe is happening. Ecclesiastes 9, 5 and 6 says that the dead know nothing, which is exactly opposite of what they say. And my favorite is John 14, verse 3, where Jesus says, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. If Jesus has to come again in order for us to be with him, that where I am, there you may be, then those who have died are not already with him. Otherwise, why would he have to come back? Those who view... Things in this way interpret sleep, which the Bible over 50 times refers to death as a sleep. They, were, they believe that that metaphor must be referring to alertness. That death must be talking about life. That knowing nothing must be talking about knowing more than ever before. The idea that they go straight to heaven contradicts the doctrine of the judgment because there's no need for a future judgment if one's destiny is already determined when he or she dies. It contradicts the doctrine of the second coming because there's no need for Jesus to come back to get us if we're already in heaven. And it contradicts the doctrine of the resurrection because there's no need for a glorified body if we can enjoy the bliss of heaven without one. This is the problem that those who believe this have from a hermeneutic standpoint. They are conflicting with the great body of obvious statements of Scripture. What about eternal conscious torment? This view fails to allow Scripture to interpret itself in its understanding of eternal fire. And in so doing, hello, oh, my brother is a good man. Thank you. Oh, that's all right. That's all right. Thank you so much. 
And so they impose a wrong definition on the text. Remember what I mentioned to you earlier about proof text. With proof texting, you look at a text and immediately take the, 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 uh, the first thing that comes to mind rather than making sure that the Scripture doesn't provide a definition itself. Remember, Scripture must interpret Scripture. And this is the problem that is made here, is imposing of a wrong definition on the text. We know from Jude and 2 Peter that everlasting or eternal fire brings people to ashes. That's what it says. So, from the Bible itself, we know that eternal fire does not go on forever, but brings people to ashes. This is proof texting, ignoring the full testimony of Scripture. According to the clear weight of biblical evidence, eternal fire is a fire with eternal results. It brings the wicked to ashes, consumes them, destroys them, causes them to perish, and results in the second death. I could show you this over and over in the Scripture. Once again, we have a wrong method of interpretation. It has a bit of higher critical, but it's primarily proof texting that leaves no room for resolving the great body of evidence in Scripture. It does not let Scripture interpret itself. So let's look at one more, and that is that the Sabbath is no longer binding. Some will say, we can't know which day is the Sabbath. This is a subtle form of higher criticism because it questions and doubts whether the Bible is sufficient or complete in the face of obvious evidence. You can almost hear people saying, well, the Bible is silent on this issue. Well, no, it's pretty obvious, number one, that if God commanded in the Ten Commandments that we must remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, that He would expect that we would know what day that was, that we would be able to ascertain which day we were to keep holy. That would be a total malignment of the character, character of God for us to say anything different. Luke 23 says that Jesus died. The next day after that was the Sabbath. The day after that he raised, which was the first day of the week. You can show someone right from the Bible that the Sabbath is what we today refer to as Saturday. You can talk to them about common languages. You can reference the fact that all the Jews would have had to all slept in for an entire 24-hour period in order for us to get messed up on this. Right? Like, how does that happen? That you, oh, that got mixed up in history. That's just not realistic or plausible and it's just a way to evade the issue. What about the apostles changed the day to Sunday, the Lord's Day, in honor of the resurrection? This is simply proof texting. Okay, Why is that? Because they use two primary passages to say this. One is in 1 Corinthians 16. And if you read the passage in 1 Corinthians 16, it says that the saints are to set apart at the beginning of each week, the first day of each week, set aside uh, some money so that when the apostle comes to take up offerings that he won't have to take up a big collection when he gets there. There's nothing about the Sabbath, nothing about worship. It's, it's not anywhere near conclusive. And then the other passage is Acts chapter 20 where Paul was preaching until midnight, remember, and Eutychus fell asleep and fell and he went and raised him. And the whole passage does not even reference any potential change in the day of worship or anything like that. 
So the idea here is that higher criticism determines that some major change in practice can happen from these vague or obscure texts. Like if God was actually going to change the sacredness of the law of God, wouldn't it be a little bit more clear than a couple of instances there you don't really know exactly what's happening. There's no mention of the change of the Sabbath. There's no mention of worship. It makes no sense. Furthermore, they determine the meaning of the Lord's Day. Have you ever heard Sunday keepers refer to the Lord's Day? I remember before I was a pastor, I was a controller of a manufacturing facility, and I was meeting, we had a controller's meeting with those from other places, and they found out I was a Seventh-day Adventist, a couple of them. One of them was from uh, Mobile, Alabama. The other was from Oklahoma, and the one from Mobile looked to the one from Oklahoma, and he said, Doug and I, we worship on the Lord's Day. Of course, what makes him say that Sunday is the Lord's Day? Because if you look back at the writings of 2nd century and what have you, you'll see references to some church fathers referring to Sunday, the first day of the week, as the Lord's Day. You look in the Bible, in Revelation chapter 1, when it makes a reference to the Lord's Day, and it says nothing at all about any day or what have you. So what do we do as Seventh-day Adventists? We go to Mark, where it says the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. That makes it His day. We go to Isaiah 58, where it says that the Sabbath is my holy day. We look to the commandment itself, where it says the Sabbath is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. It's the Lord's day. Scripture must interpret Scripture. Higher criticism uses historical or extra-biblical literature over the Bible interpreting itself. And I'm going to talk about that more later as well. How about Ten Commandments being nailed to the cross? Colossians chapter 2. Once again, I would say this is proof texting because it's read superficially and in isolation from the rest of the Bible. When they read in Colossians 2 that the handwriting of ordinances or handwriting of requirements that was against us, they equate that to the Ten Commandments despite the obvious internal context. Number one, it's a handwriting of requirements. Number two, everything that it speaks of after that are ceremonial requirements. Food and drink offering, festivals, new moons, all ceremonial, and it ignores the larger biblical content which is if you go back to Deuteronomy and find out that the ceremonial law was in the side of the ark and it stood there as a witness against them. Just like Colossians 2 says that the handwriting of requirements was against them. It's clearly, if you take all of the weight of evidence in the Scripture, talking about the ceremonial Sabbaths, but this is not the conclusion that they come to. Furthermore, to come to their conclusion, they then have to ignore the great weight of evidence in the New Testament that says the, the uh, Ten Commandments are still binding and valid with Christians. You remember that James chapter 2 says, So speak and so do as those who shall be judged by the law of liberty. Right? That's clearly talking in the context. It mentions a couple of the Ten Commandments. Same you can find in Romans chapter 2. You go to Ephesians 6, you find that it talks about the fifth commandment. And it says it is the first commandment with promise. In fact, every place where you read about the Ten Commandments in the New Testament, it uses the present tense. The law is spiritual. The commandment is holy and just and good. The fifth commandment is 
the first commandment with promise. But when it speaks about the ceremonial that was nailed to the cross, it says that was against us. You have to ignore the greater context of the Bible, which is proof texting. It's finding something that you think you can distort and confuse and then saying la 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 to the rest of it and using it to convince and confuse people. What about it doesn't matter what day we keep? This again is proof texting and with eisegesis. All of these actually impose on the text. So in one sense or another, most of them use eisegesis. Of course, they refer to Romans 14 as their biblical support, for it doesn't matter what day we keep. But Romans 14 includes no reference to the Sabbath, no reference to worship. It does reference food, which doesn't seem to make sense if you're talking about the Sabbath. Nowhere is the Sabbath a doubtful issue, such as was referenced in Romans 14. It rejects the Sabbath because there is no explicit command in the New Testament, and yet it rejects the Old Testament testimony. Everything about this particular idea of proof texting to say it doesn't matter what day we keep has to ignore the established precedent and practice of the people of God. And I believe that it's not uncommon in other areas of doctrine for people to ignore precedent in order to come to a conclusion. But it's not safe to say, oh, this text right here, this makes it clear we don't have to keep the Sabbath. What are you talking about? Why are Paul and the apostles keeping it all through the book of Acts? Why do they never stop keeping it? If this is true... Why is that practice still going on? Precedent means something in the Bible. It's part of the weight of evidence, and this ignores it. And lastly, the Sabbath is about a relationship with Christ. This, of course, spiritualizes away the meaning of the Sabbath, and it tries to do that from Hebrews chapter 4, where it talks about the Sabbath as being a rest in Christ. And certainly there is a measure of truth to the fact that the Sabbath is symbolic of resting with faith in Christ. No question about it. The Sabbath has meaning beyond just the observance of the day. In fact, the observance is to highlight the meaning that God created us and that He's our sanctifier. That's that's the whole purpose of it. But to eliminate the obvious meaning in order to accept the spiritualized meaning is never done in any other example in Scripture. You don't, you know, go ahead and ignore the piece of paper when you're getting married because the piece of paper doesn't matter anyway. Right? When in the Old Testament they needed to be forgiven, they couldn't just get on their knees in the tent. They had to follow that through by taking the offering to the temple. God has always had means of physical expression to deeply impress the spiritual truth that is intended by it. And it's the same with the Sabbath. What happens when you think that it's just that 
Hebrews 4 is just spiritualizing is it pits itself against other texts that clearly say something different. Of course, when we do that, who determines what's inspired? The reader does. And this always places the reader in a position of authority. Now, these are four examples I've given you. Theistic evolution, the dead go straight to heaven, eternal conscious torment, the Sabbath is no longer binding. During the worship hour, I want to talk to you about women's ordination. And I want to go to the biblical texts and the arguments and ask ourselves the same questions that we have asked ourselves as we have walked through these other key beliefs that we as Seventh-day Adventists believe. Because here is my own uh, challenge. When I come to this issue that we are studying as a church, I need to be able to come to a conclusion using the same method of interpreting the Bible that I used to believe that the Sabbath was the seventh day and I should keep it. I need to be able to come to it with the same method of interpretation. If I can't, then I don't know that I can trust that. You see, I need to be able to use these simple principles of interpretation that we've talked about. And that's what we are going to explore at the 11 o'clock hour. Are you open to that? Okay, good. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for this time we've been able to spend looking at this issue of hermeneutics, how to interpret the Bible. We can see now that the reason that many of our brothers and sisters in other denominations come to different conclusions from us is because they're not using the same method of interpreting the Bible. Lord, help us always to remain true to this, interpreta- uh, this method of interpretation. We want, Lord, to always believe in the Bible as fully inspired and fully authoritative. Now please bless the remainder of our Sabbath morning with Sabbath school and worship, we pray in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.